Bill Nye's Sophia Adventure, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, and I lived a dream a couple of weeks ago. Bill Nye and I made a TV show. Today you'll hear some of the audio from our visit to Sophia, the huge infrared telescope mounted in a 747, the very plane Bill worked on when he was a Boeing engineer. Bruce Betts and I will tell you about a great Sophia-related What's Up Space Trivia Prize, and we're just about to visit with Emily Lakdawalla. Emily, thanks for joining us, as always, and uh, happy holidays. You've got uh, another update on Akatsuki. You've told me that's uh, the closest approximation to uh, correct pronunciation uh, that you've been able to come up with. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's not very good news on the Japanese Venus Climate Orbiter, which, of course, failed to go into orbit last week. Now they're doing some fault tree analysis. They're trying to figure out what happened with the probe. And a couple of the possible fault scenarios might mean that the engine nozzle has actually fallen off. So that would be very bad news. That would be awful, wouldn't it? Oh, my goodness. Well, they haven't given up hope, uh, judging from the cartoon that uh, some fan put up. No, they and and the Japanese public have certainly not given up hope. There's a very cute cartoon of Akatsuki saying, I'll be back. So, you know, six years, it'll be back in Venus's neighborhood. And who knows what the Japanese can pull off? They've shown that they can do amazing things with crippled spacecraft. I will wish them luck. And of course, that cartoon and the uh, your full report are in the blog. Let's look forward to some things that, as we speak, have not quite appeared yet, but might be there by the time people see this. And one of those is uh, opportunity at this uh, interesting crater. Yeah, there was so much happening this week. And one of the one of the big events was that opportunity after many months of driving has finally pulled up to the rim of Santa Maria crater, which is about 100 meters in diameter. It's one of the larger craters it's investigated. And it's just spectacular. It's got this amazing rim made of made of this brecciated broken up sharp angular rock and the topography is lovely and they're going to be spending through um, probably uh, several weeks at the rim of Santa Maria crater because there's the holidays coming up and the drivers get some time off and there's also Mars conjunction coming up when they won't be able to command the rover anyway so they'll give it a nice long list of imaging and data taking commands and we'll let everybody take a break for a few weeks. In the uh, picture that you've already put up, when it was not quite at the rim of the crater, there is uh, what could only be, I mean, there is absolutely no question, it's the tail of a dinosaur. I know, it's pretty amazing what what shapes we humans can see in rocks, but dang if it doesn't look like an alligator's (laughs) tail or a dinosaur or something, it's pretty funny. You got one more big story that I hope we'll be talking about uh, with Linda Spilker pretty soon on the show, but this is out at Titan. That's right. You know, people have been talking about volcanoes on Titan, ice volcanoes, for a long time because it's one possibility for how you can possibly replenish the methane that's in Titan's atmosphere. The methane should be destroyed very quickly by solar radiation, and yet it's there. So it's got to be replenished somehow. And volcanoes... Volcanoes are one way that you could do that, but nobody's ever convinced me anyway with evidence for volcanoes on the surface of Titan. But this thing that they unveiled last week has really, really, um, I think, convinced a lot of people because the topography is so incredible. They got two overlapping radar swaths, which gives you topography, and it's got some of the highest elevations next to this really deep pit and these things that do look like flows that are a different composition from their neighbors. So, I mean, it's not a slam dunk case, but it's really by far the best possible example of a cryovolcano in the whole outer solar system, and and it's really quite amazing to look at. All right, Emily, that'll wrap it up for uh, this week. We'll talk to you again next time. Thanks again. Thank you, Matt. 
Emily Locked Wallace, the Science and Technology Coordinator for the Planetary Society and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. Stay tuned. We're just a few moments away from Bill and Matt's excellent adventure in the desert. The Strategic Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, better known as SOFIA, is a 100-inch infrared telescope that has begun doing what no Earth-based telescope can do. And yet, it's not a spacecraft. SOFIA is ingeniously mounted in the fuselage of a 747SP that used to carry passengers to exotic destinations around the world. The plane is based at the NASA Dryden Flight Research Center in California's high desert. When I told Planetary Society Executive Director Bill Nye we could pay it a visit, he jumped at the chance. It wasn't just the opportunity to make a video about a great new tool for science. You see, before he became the science guy, Bill was a Boeing engineer who designed critical components for the 747. And this very 747, the Clipper Lindbergh, is one he had worked on. So a few days ago, we sat down in a conference room with Bob Meyer the SOFIA project manager, to get some background on the effort. The um, initial program model was contractor-led led with NASA oversight, so it was a privatized model, and things were not going real well on that model, so the program was restructured in 2006, and the pr program management um, was turned over to NASA Dryden, and we restructured it with a government-led contractor-supported activity and divided it into two, two projects. So there's a science project, which is located at the Science Center at Ames, and then there's the platform project. I, I, you know, I'm sure you know a lot of this background, but um, infra, infrared allows you to see a lot of things in the um, universe that you can't see in the visual range. But the problem with infrared is, is that it doesn't work very well on the ground because the water, water vapor in the atmosphere blocks a lot of it out. So we actually plotted transmission versus wavelength, which is, and the wavelength is pretty much the infrared wavelength. Even, even in dry places, yeah. the, the water vapor soaks up too much infrared. Yeah. There are spacecraft that do infrared work. There was Spitzer that actually just went into the warm mode, and then there's Herschel. But they need cryogen, specifically liquid helium, to cool the, um, the detectors in the infrared uh, instruments. And they run out of those cry engines typically in three to four years. So you have a perfectly good piece of hardware that's up orbiting, but it can't really do its job anymore because it ran out of cry engines. And so via, because it comes home every night, we can change science instruments out. We can replenish the cry engines. We can fly science instruments that instead of generally being, you know, maybe eight, eight to ten years old uh, because of the all the, all the requirements to, to freeze the technology to put it in space, we can fly technology that's a few years old. It must be a fantastically difficult problem to track any object in the sky while you're flying at 600, 500 it knots. Is, it is, and actually I'll, I'll, I'll give you a visual that I use with people. We're, um, i got my quarter out here. <laughs> So the, the telescope is stable to uh, actually just a few arc seconds while, while flying. So all the aerodynamic buffeting and everything on it, and we, it's gyro-stabilized. So we would actually have a, um, a jitter error that would be no larger than a quarter at about four or five miles while we're flying in flight. It's pretty phenomenal. And so there's hydraulic actuators that hold it. There are actuators, and it's gyro-stabilized. Mm -hmm. um, infrared can see through dust 
but it can also see cold dust. And, and the reason it can see, it, it seems contradictory, but the reason it isn't is that uh, in the near infrared, you can, the, those wavelengths actually see through dust. So you can actually, um, you know, for example, see the galactic center, which otherwise is obscured by dust. Tell us the difference between near infrared and far infrared. It's, it's the wavelength. So the near infrared is nearer to the visible wavelengths, and then the mid and far infrared are, are further away from the, what we can see with our eye. So what do you call uh, infrared, 1,000 nanometers? You've got it right, right here. It's about 1 to about 1,000, yeah. So that's, that's why we, you know, we want to use infrared and why, we, why it's, you really need to fly or be in a spacecraft in order to really be able to fully utilize infrared. Our goal is about 1.6 arc seconds when we get to full operational capability. The width of the moon is 30 arc minutes, and this is accurate to uh, arc seconds. You could resolve, for example, a pretty small crater on the moon while flying at 500 knots at 41,000 feet where it's fantastically cold outside right. and get beautiful crystal clear images. Yep, amazing. So we also, in terms of operational capability, we wanted to be able to fly at six hours above 41,000, and that was picked so that you're, you know, you're above the tropopause up in, uh, in the, the uh, drier, uh, stable air. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to be able to support 40 uh, principal or guest investigator teams per year at full operational capability, about 1,000 science hours per year. That'd be maybe Matt and me someday. It could be, yeah. Uh, we needed to have global operations. And one of the, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is later. A 20-year life, and because Sophia um, is large and we can carry people in it, we and it's a it's a, a good icon uh, for kids. We wanted to promote educational opportunity opportunities with Sophia. So we actually are going to have an EPO section, which isn't quite finished yet, in the front of the airplane, and we'll be able to carry educators. We're going to have a goal of uh, so many educators per year. Well, let me know if you want help with it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but, that would be fantastic. So let me just see here. But let me just say, as a former Boeing employee, it's quite a testament to this hull, to this airplane. The thing is 30 years old now or more, yeah. and it's still flying beautifully. So when we go down, this is what you'll see. Um, there's, been a, um, there's been a bulkhead added in that, uh, the, that is a structural member, and the pressure uh, barrier from the, cab the inside of the cabin to the cavity itself, the cavity where the mirror is, is open to the atmosphere. Does anybody know? That sounds really dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least the people in this room do. <laughs> That's Bob Meyer, project manager for the SOFIA Infrared Telescope. When we return, Bill Nye climbs aboard the SOFIA 747 for a conversation with project scientist Pam Markham. This is Planetary Radio. Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy here. On behalf of all of us at the Planetary Society and Planetary Radio, thanks. We're in our ninth year of this show, so thanks to all of you who join us each week as we explore the universe and do what we can to, dare I say it, change this world. Perhaps you'll want to join this band of planetary brothers and sisters. I don't want you to lose control, but a gift of $50 or more will get you a Planetary Radio t-shirt. That, along with our great interviews, Emily Lakdawalla's timely and fascinating updates, Bruce and Matt's What's Up segment, and my own modest contributions to the series. So if you're of a mind, you may want to click around planetary.org slash radio, download a few past episodes, and learn more about your place in space. So once again, thanks. And everyone on the staff at the Planetary Society says... Happy Holidays! Happy Holidays! 
Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Bill Nye and I recently climbed aboard a heavily modified 747 SP to shoot a video about SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. The plane allows SOFIA to do its work above nearly all the infrared-absorbing water vapor in Earth's atmosphere. I hope you'll visit planetary.org to watch the documentary Bill and I made about our visit. We had a blast clambering down into the telescope compartment, visiting the 747 cockpit, and meeting the terrific SOFIA team. Bill sat down in the cabin for a conversation with another key member of that team. We're at one of the instrument racks on the SOFIA airplane, and I'm here with... Pam Markham, the SOFIA project scientist. And so, Pam, what's your, what's your deal here? Well, we are located in the part of the plane where I think the real action occurs. Um, the person who would sit in your seat is the telescope operator, and uh, this person really uh, runs the show. Uh, you know, the uh, targets are laid out well ahead of time in the flight plan, so people know exactly where they need to be pointing in the sky at what moment. And the person in the seat that you're sitting in is the person who makes that happen. Um, well, it's a consorted uh, effort, of course, but the person in your seat would actually uh, slew the telescope to the uh, proper place in the sky to acquire the object. And, uh, you do it with a keypad or a, uh, a mouse? Yeah, it's all electronically driven. To precise place in the sky. Absolutely. And we lock on, and I tell you, the coolest thing uh, when you're sitting here during the flight is when the telescope is actually locked on, tracking on the target, to watch the counterweight go back and forth. You know what's happening? Is that, uh, the telescope's not moving. It's the airplane that's jiggling around the telescope. How long would you sit here? Well, the telescope operator is, you know, uh, he has to keep an eye on the telescope uh, during the whole flight. So, you know, you, you might get a little uh, break to go grab uh, a bite to eat, but um, you're, you're sitting there for the whole flight. Six hours. Uh, at least. <laughs> we actually fly a little longer than six hours uh, because you have to allow for the time to climb up to altitude and then, of course, the descent. So altogether, you're probably flying about between nine and ten hours. That's a, that's a long work day. Absolutely. But I, I love the office. It's a good work environment. Why did you get involved in this program? What do you, what do you hope, what's different? Well, SOFIA is just going to be an incredible world-class observatory. Um, we, we've started the science flights uh, last week, uh, really successful um, uh, data that came out of uh, the observatory. And, you know, the observatory is still, um, I would say, uh, a work in, in uh, progress. We haven't gotten to nominal operations yet. And the fact that we are... Uh, meeting and actually beating some of our specifications for the uh, uh, operation of this observatory is really incredible. The images that we uh, uh, were able to obtain last week on several astronomical objects um, were um, extraordinary. And in fact, uh, some of those images were the first time that object has ever been looked at at that high quality resolution at that particular wavelength. So if I'm a regular person, I'm paying taxes, I'm walking down the street, what is Sophia going to do for me? Okay, well, Sophia is going to bring to you um, the world of infrared astronomy. It's going to give you a view of what is going on in the core that's shrouded with dust of star-forming regions. We're actually going to be able to resolve individual stars 
in an otherwise completely opaque uh, area of the sky um, from a visible light perspective. So the infrared allows you to literally peer down into the heart of that star forming region and actually be able to see the stars that are being formed. And that will give us insight into how our own solar system, for example, and our own uh, star, the sun, uh, was formed. So you're seeing where stars are born. This right away says to me, fusion. Absolutely. And in some cases, in fact, last week, we looked at a dense, cold molecular cloud. When you say cold? Almost at the, uh, you know, absolute zero level. I mean, just, you know, maybe uh, 10 degrees uh, Kelvin. Uh, so, so very, very cold. In this area uh, of the sky, uh, this particular molecular cloud that's very dense, you know, cold gas tends to clump together, that's sites where brand new stars are just beginning to form. In fact, they probably aren't even starting the fusion process yet. What you're actually seeing is gravitational clumps of material that will be stars in the next, uh, you know, million years or so. Oh, million years. It's yeah. coming right up. That's right. You, you don't really know what you're going to discover. So that's why you're looking. That's right. Well, we know we know enough based on the considerable uh, uh, groundwork that has been laid by previous infrared observatories. What types of things to look at? Um, there are still many unanswered questions about the very process, the physics involved in star formation. Um, how do planetary systems evolve and end up forming things like the Earth? Um, like, where did all the water come from? I was going to say that. <laughs> where did all the water come from? And Sophia will actually be able to make some inroads into that question as well by looking at comets. Uh, we spoke earlier about um, the uh, potential that Sophia has for looking at comets that are really close to the sun. Um, and that's the moment when you really want to look at comets and gather data because the, uh, the, the gas and the dust from the comet are being um, evaporated uh, most significantly at that point. And uh, to be able to acquire data and look at the types of chemicals and elements that are in that comet, uh, we may very well be able to ask, is the type of, uh, there's a, a signature of water um, in that comet that we can then ask is, do we see that same signature on the Earth? And can we actually be able to figure out which group of comets that delivered the water to the Earth? And the water formed in stars too, right? The water is present. We already know this, although Sophia will provide more answers about this question as well. Um, water already exists, we know this, in the environments in which new stars are formed. The real question is, what role does water play in the development of planetary systems? Oh, that would be good to know, wouldn't it? Thank you very much. How cool is this? Sophia Project scientist Pam Markham. You can hear and see much more at planetary.org. That's where you'll find the half-hour documentary Bill Nye and I made about our recent trip to California's high desert, where the Sophia Project is based. Don't worry, it's broken into nice, bite-sized segments for Internet viewing. And I hope Bill and I will get to make that return trip when educators and media will ride along as Sophia reveals the infrared secrets of our universe.
Bruce Betts is now on the Skype line. He's uh, here to tell us all about the night sky. What's up? Stuff up in the sky. We've got uh, Jupiter dominating the evening sky, bright star-like object in the southeast. After sunset, we have got Venus dominating the pre-dawn sky, bright star-like object over in the east with Saturn above it. If you are picking this up right after it's hot off the presses on Monday the 20th, then remember, there's a total lunar eclipse tonight with the uh, partial eclipse beginning at 10.32 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you're picking it up after that, we hope you enjoyed the totally awesome total <laughs> lunar eclipse. I don't think we're going to see much of it here in Southern California where it has uh, been only raining. Only if we take a, f a flight up in the air, I think. Yeah, so God. Apparently it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights here. Maybe we can get back out to Dryden and get the Sophia people to uh, give us a lift. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll happen. Listen, one thing, I, I because we did hear about this from Patrick Wiggins, who uh, thought that maybe he misheard that you said that most uh, meteor showers come from asteroids, and I assured Patrick that you know better than that. It was a, a slip of the tongue. Yeah, I didn't actually say that. I suspect that you altered the audio file to make <laughs> it seem like I said that. Drat, foiled again. <laughs> no, no, of course, most meteor showers sources are actually great big balls of cheese. <laughs> no, they're comets, comets. Apparently I accidentally misspoke and, and uh, said asteroids, but the vast majority of them, comets. All right, we can move on. Uh, we move on to this week in space history. It was this week in 1968 that Apollo 8 launched and then went into orbit around the moon. Uh, it was 1988, 20 years later, two... Uh, Soviet cosmonauts returned from space after each having been there for over a year. Hmm. Wow. And then now I'm ready to move on to the next segment. Oh, and you probably want to know if you need to say random space fact. Let me save you the trouble because... Oh, thank you. We have heard once again from uh, Brandon Cook. And Brandon is the one, he's already brought us a couple of really spectacular little bits of uh, listener-created content, I'm calling them. So here is his introduction for Random Space Fact this week. One of Nutmeg's earliest mentions of use was in the 8th century by St. Theodore the Studite, while cinnamon was known to have been imported to Egypt as early as 2000 B.C. Uh, Tim, what are you doing? I'm doing the segment, you know, Random Spice Fact. Tim, it's not random spice fact. It's random spice fact. Oh, it is? Uh, what are we going to do? I don't know. Maybe Dr. Bruce Betts can help. Wow, I will uh, try to do my best, although it would be really cool if we had a fact about paprika instead. I, I think we should just do a space and cooking show. <laughs> but not right now, right? Not right now. Mars Odyssey, this last week. As you may be aware, it became the longest operational spacecraft at Mars ever. And it's a really long time. It just beat out Mars Global Surveyor's record of 3,340 days. Very, very impressive. We've got to get uh, somebody from that team back on. Uh, because, of course, that spacecraft uh, should be renowned not just for its uh, longevity up there, but, um, but for some great accomplishments. Oh, it's done all sorts of great science. Still does. All right, we move on to the trivia contest. We asked you a question about an aircraft. What airplane was the airplane used to ferry the Soviet one-time use, as it turned out, Buran 
shuttle spacecraft. I also asked, what was its claim to fame, of which it has many, but but in particular, it's got some records that it holds. Go ahead. I will tell you that claim to fame, first of all. It is the world's heaviest fixed-wing aircraft. Now, I don't know why everybody submitted that as heaviest fixed-wing. must be how uh, the Wikipedia lists it, because I, it's, it's probably heavier than any uh, rotary-wing aircraft as well. But it is the Antonov AN-25, also known as Mriya. I think I'm pronouncing that more or less correctly. And uh, it has many claims to fame. It also has carried the largest cargo ever, which oddly enough was not the Buran uh, space shuttle. It uh, carried, what is it, 216,000 meals ready to eat to uh, Iraq to uh, resupply the Allies there. That's a, that's a lot of MREs. That is. That would last me like a a week. (laughs) At least. (laughs) But you wouldn't eat the carb part anyway, so. (laughs) (laughs) And and did you and and there's only one of these beasts that they ever fully finished and made. It has a bit part in uh, the movie 2012, the uh, worst science fiction movie made in history since Plan 9 from Outer Space. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I we're told by John Gallant that the Decepticon character Jetstorm in the 2007 Transformer movie is based on the Antonov AN-225. Oh, you probably want to know our winner. Oh, I desperately do, and I'm (laughs) sure our winner wants to know, too. It was Kev Knowles. Congratulations, Kev. Uh, Kev is in New Zealand, one of our uh, Down Under listeners. He won out over a whole bunch of people who obviously were hoping to pick up that Beyond Earth t-shirt from ChopShopStore.com. Kev, we're going to send one your way very soon. And we have a cool prize for the new contest as well. But first, tell us, what what is it you want to know from people? Well, we just had some new uh, astronauts, cosmonauts transfer to the International Space Station. And uh, I like people to to keep track of who's up there. So uh, a fairly simple one. Who is on board the International Space Station right now. All six crew members go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to enter. And you want the full crew, right? Yes. Okay. You've got until the 27th, that would be December 27 at 2 p.m. Pacific time, to get us this latest answer. And what a prize. We picked this up uh, from the generous people out at uh, Dryden. A hardcover copy of their new book, Flights of Discovery, 60 Years of Flight Research at the Dryden Flight Research Center. It is absolutely stunningly beautiful and uh, begins even before the X-1B. But wait, there's more. How no, ab- really? <laughs> How about a Sophia commemorative pin that actually flew on the first light flight by that telescope, 747-based telescope that we uh, just talked about on the show and that I hope everybody's going to go and take a look at the video that uh, Bill and I created uh, from that visit. There you go. That's cool stuff. I'll say. In fact, I did say. Good job. (laughs) All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about your favorite form of precipitation. Thank you, and good night, and happy holidays. Happy holidays to you and to all the rest of you as well. He's Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. He joins us every week here for What's Up. Forgive me, just one more pitch to take a look at the documentary Bill Nye and I have produced about our visit to SOFIA, the infrared telescope in a 747. We'll have a link that you can reach from our convenient Planetary Radio button that is always at the top left of the Planetary Society homepage, 
planetary.org. There may also be a link to the video under the Features heading a little lower on the same page. Join us next week when we will once again check in with Cassini project scientist Linda Spilker. I'm sure she'll want to talk about that suspected ice volcano on the surface of Saturn's moon Titan and much more. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and made possible in part by a grant from the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation. Thanks for listening. Clear skies and happy holidays. 